Jude chapter number one. Got my high chair. Jude chapter number one. Jude chapter 1, verse number 1. The Bible says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Tonight, I'd like to look at the address to the book of Jude and just kind of look at this, uh, these first two verses and just a brief introduction to the book and... Um, and just look at Jude a little bit and look at what Jude, who Jude wrote to and then also what Jude wanted for these believers. And uh, hopefully we can make some applications to our own lives. Let's pray and we'll look at a few things. Father, thank you for your love and your goodness to us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Jude and the challenge that it has been in my life in the short while that I've been looking at it. And Lord, I just pray that you challenge our hearts tonight and uh, we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple things I want you to think about tonight. The first thing I want to talk about is the writer, and that is Jude. Um, the very first word of the book is Jude. I told you, if you were here last Wednesday, we ta I told you about throughout the book of Jude, you find groups of three. And um, any commentary or book you read on the book of Jude is going to mention this idea that Jude over and over and over groups things in threes. And in verse one, you have three things about Jude. You have Jude, servant, and brother. And I want you to think about those three things. The first thing when it comes to Jude, it's his name. It's who he is. You have a name, and that name says something. When you hear the, the words, Shannon Monday, Dustin Crosscob, Todd Simon, Ben Schmid. Those words, those names probably say something to you. And your name says something. And here is Jude. They probably knew who Jude was because he's the brother of, of uh, James. And um, he was the pastor at the church in Jerusalem of Jerusalem. So they probably knew, oh, this is Jude. Oh, man, his brother's a bigwig. I mean, they knew who Jude was. I told you Wednesday that there's a big possibility that Jude was an evangelist. Um, I don't know. I guess historically speaking, there is uh, proof of that. But um, some say that Jude was an evangelist. So he was probably well-known. So when they open this and it says Jude, it meant something. But, but I also had this thought. God uses ordinary people. You know, we read our Bibles, and if you start in Genesis and you go through the book of Revelation, especially in the Old Testament, you see God do amazing things with people. And it's very easy to get kind of caught up and say, man, Moses was an awesome guy. Man, Abraham, and wow, Joseph. And, and you look at those guys, and man, they did something awesome. Look at Daniel. But do you realize they were just like you and me? They were ordinary people, but they made a choice. And that choice was to submit to God and let God use them and do something with their lives. What if Moses would have stood by, stuck to his guns and threw out all his excuses and said, no, I'm not going back to Egypt. 
you realize he could have done that. What if Joseph would have said, okay, Mrs. Potiphar, how much different would those stories be? But yet they didn't. They made the right choice, and God did amazing things with their lives. Um, I, th I thought of James chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Elias was just like you and me. He is just a man. But God did something with his life. Why? Because he gave his life to God. And you know what? The same is true for you and for me. If we will just simply submit, give God everything, and let God have his will and way in our lives, there is no telling what God could do. There's no telling what God could do with our kids if they would just give God everything. So here you have Jude. But notice the next thing about Jude. Jude, it says the servant of Jesus Christ. I want to talk about that last. Notice the third one. The, and brother of James. Here we find that he is the brother of James, who was the pastor in Jerusalem, and that makes him the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus. Notice he does not throw out this idea that he is the brother of Jesus, or that he is the half-brother of Jesus. He throw, does throw out, though, that he is the brother of James. I don't know if this was... Now, if you go back and you look at like Paul's writings, a lot of times Paul will throw in the idea that he is a what? An apostle. And what he's doing is he is establishing authority for what he's about to say. He's saying, I'm an apostle. You have a reason to listen to me. I have authority. Well, Jude, or Jude is not an apostle. And Jude, maybe by referencing his relationship with his brother, is establishing a little bit of authority. I don't know, but he throws out this idea that he is the brother of James. And I, I, want, I want to share something with you. In Matthew 13, verse 55, um, they, the people said this, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Judas is another way of saying Jude. They are the same name. So here, here is their family. Maybe he doesn't mention being the brother of Jesus. Maybe there's some, some disappointment there or some shame because honestly, they didn't believe on the Lord till later on. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 47, the Bible says, while he yet talked to the people, talking about Jesus, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. In John 7, verse 5, the Bible says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. So Jude, James, um, and the others mentioned there, Joseph and Simon, were not believers. Were not believers. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, though, the Bible says this, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So there was a point in time where they did accept Christ. When that was, I don't know. Obviously, James being a pastor, Jude being a potential evangelist or writing this book, obviously they were saved somewhere, but they weren't always believers. They weren't always believers. Can you imagine living in Christ's shadow as a kid and growing up in that home? I mean, I, I cannot even begin to imagine how hard that must have been. 
I'm sure when they went to school, everybody wanted to see Jesus. Oh, what's he going to do today? I don't know. Granted, he wasn't some parlor trick, and he wasn't just out there for the whims of the people. But still, he was God, even at five, eight, 12, 15. He was still God. And so one thing I thought about was this. You know what? Just because you grow up in church, just because you go to church, just because your parents are Christians or your grandparents are Christians don't make you a Christian. It doesn't just happen. You have to make a choice. Just because your mom and dad live for God and come to church and, and make a choice to do right. Listen, you kids, you have to make a choice. You're gonna have to make a choice for yourself. It's not gonna just happen. Your Christian life won't just happen. You are gonna have to make a choice. Jude and James had to make a choice. I also had this thought. Don't give up on people. Do you think maybe it was hard for Jesus knowing his brothers weren't saved, that they didn't believe in him? Do you think it was hard when he would come back into his hometown and he knew that James and Judas and Simon and Joseph were there and yet they didn't believe on him? Do you think that might have been hard? I'm sure that was hard. I don't know if they got saved after he died, after he rose from the grave, after he ascended. I don't know when that happened. But I'm sure it was hard. Do you have unsaved family? I do. Most of my family's Catholic. I have a grandmother who's Catholic. I have uncles who, who are Catholic. I, I had a, about seven years ago, I flew to Wisconsin to witness to a great aunt who was on her deathbed. She didn't get saved. I have uncles, aunts. They're not saved. And you know what? Sometimes it's easy to quit and give up and just say, yeah, I'll, you know, I don't know. Why witness to them again? And it's easy just to kind of forget but don't give up. Don't give, don't give up. But they weren't saved. These, these brothers, these family members, they didn't believe on Jesus. But then the third thing, and that's the, really the second thing, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. Like I said, he doesn't mention being the brother of Jesus or the half-brother, but he calls himself a servant. And you know, just like pretty much every other writer in the New Testament, he refers to himself as the servant of Jesus Christ, actually a servant of Jesus Christ. But listen, what is a servant? What is a servant? We might call him a slave. We might call what the Bible calls a deacon, one that waits tables or does menial tasks. Um, but here, the Bible uses a very specific word, and the word means bond slave. It literally means one who has surrendered his will to that of another. One who has said no to themselves so that they can say yes to somebody else. Many were born into this lifestyle, but honestly, there were those who were free men who would surrender themselves to be slaves. And you know what? Many times their lives were better. It's pretty interesting. If you do a, a study in the, in the New Testament about slavery and service and uh, bondmen or bondwomen, sometimes men and women would indenture themselves to a master and they would become their servant. And when they became their servant, everything was provided for. They had a place to live. They had clothes. They had food. And they were taken care of. 
Listen, many times a potential servant didn't give themselves to a master who was a horrible master. They usually went to a master who would be good to them. You know what's really interesting? A good servant was entrusted with all, with all sorts of things. Think about Joseph in Potiphar's house. He was in charge of the whole house, and he was a servant. Many times in Bible times, the servant, if a master watched his servant and his servant was trustworthy and was smart and diligent and good at what he did, there were times when a master would actually give a servant the money to start a business. And that master would support that servant as he ran that business. And many times it was a better life than being free, being a servant. And here, Jude says, I am a bond slave to Jesus Christ. I am a bond slave to Jesus Christ. I have sacrificed my will for the Lord's will. I want to do what he wants me to do, not what I want to do. And that was a choice he made. It was a willful choice. You know, I was thinking about that. And I had a couple thoughts about this idea of being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, those who surrender to serve the Lord are not second-class citizens. I have, I've heard parents, I've, I've, I've talked to teenagers and teenage parents enough, and I've heard parents say that my kid's too good for the ministry. My kid's too smart for the ministry. Why would my kid settle? Or I've heard people say it the other way. Well, they can't do anything else. Really? And that's the way we view serving the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't care if, you've got, if your kid has a scholarship to Yale. I don't care if he's got a full-ride scholarship to UNC for basketball or whatever else. There is nothing greater than to say no to himself and to say yes to God. Why, why do we feel like it's okay to give God our second best? Why do we feel like it's okay to say, well, I have this skill or that talent, and well, Lord, you know, maybe later. How do we say that's okay? How do we rationalize that? And we shouldn't. We shouldn't. But many times we treat serving the Lord like it's second class. And listen, our children, my children, your children are no less for serving the Lord. They are no less. If not, maybe they're greater. And we should want to give our best to God, not the leftovers. And you know, the other thing is this, is God isn't some taskmaster cracking a whip over us. You know, it's interesting, you can go, even go to, and I've said this before, but Romans chapter, 12, verse number, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. You realize God does not demand our service. Do you realize that? Do you realize God isn't waiting, waiting to strike you with a bolt of lightning if you don't do something or you don't do what he wants you to do? Do you realize that? Do you realize God, in his mercy and in his compassion, begs us? Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth me. Has he not done enough to deserve our service, to deserve our time, to deserve our attention, to deserve our lives? Yes, he has. But the harsh reality is this. We're all servants to something. 
You realize you're serving something? You realize these kids, teenagers, are serving something? Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. We are servants to something. What are we serving? What are we serving? But here you have the writer, Jude. Jude, a brother, a servant. But then you have the recipients of the letter. Not only the writer, but you have the people that were receiving the letter. Um, I told you last week, we don't have a group of people. We don't have a specific group of people. We don't have a city, a country, nobody's name. It's just kind of an open letter. We do know, though, that it is written to Christians. Like I said, there are three things. Root, Jude tends to write in groups of three. And at the, in the second half of verse one, he says, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved by Jesus Christ and called, and called. So here you find three things concerning the people he was writing to. And the first thing about these people is that they were set apart for service. Notice what it says in verse two, or verse one, that are sanctified by God the Father. The word sanctified is the word saint. It means to be set apart for that which is holy. It was used in reference to the temple and the instruments and the furniture within the temple. It was that which was holy and set apart for service. And that's what he calls them here. Sanctified by God the Father. They are set apart for service. Do you realize when God saved you, he set you apart for service? He didn't save you to go back living in your sin. You can read Romans 6 about all that. What, shall we continue in grace that, uh, or continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. That word, those two words, God forbid, literally mean don't even let it be created. Don't even let it come into your mind. It's not an option. No, God didn't save me so I can keep sinning. God saved me to change me, to make me different, to change my life. And so here, these saints are set apart for service. And what's really awesome is the tense of this word is it is done. It is finished. This being made holy, set apart for service, being consecrated to the Lord, it's done and you can't change it. And it lasts forever. They're set apart for service. First Peter chapter 2, verse 19 says this, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy, that's the same word, and holy nation, a peculiar people. And that peculiar doesn't mean weird or strange. It means special, one of a kind. You are gods, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God did not call us out of darkness to go back to the darkness. God called us out of darkness so that we could walk in the light and show forth the praises of him. That's why we've been consecrated. That's why we've been set, set aside or set apart. That's why we've been set apart for service. But not only have they have been set apart for service, notice this, they have been secure, they are secure in the hand of the Savior. They are secure in the hand of the Savior and preserved in Jesus Christ. Preserved. This preserved is an interesting word. It literally means to watch over. 
It has a family idea. It has a loving idea. It has a tenderness to it. You ever take your hand as a dad and put it on your kid's head and steer him around? You ever do that? You ever done that? Or maybe a mom, whatever, and steer your kid around? You ever had your kid come at you and you stick your head on their hand and hold them at arm's length and they kind of swing away and try to get you, but they can't? Have you ever... Have you ever been in a potentially dangerous situation and had to kind of guide your kid through something? I remember when we first moved to Pennsylvania, what, man, almost seven years ago now, um, there is a state park in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania is full of state parks, but there is one, it's called Ricketts Glen, and Ricketts Glen has this hiking trail, and I think there's 27 or something odd waterfalls on that trail, and it's a big loop. And Nick was, man, that would have been seven years ago, Nick might have been, what, one and a half, two years old? He was two, and we hiked the first couple. We, we parked at the top. We're kind of hiking. Well, there's a 90-foot waterfall, and the trail goes right up to the edge of that waterfall, and then it goes down the stairs. There are these rocks and all these stairs that they've put in there, and it goes down to the bottom, and there's Nick, too, and I'm holding his hand, and, and we're walking those steps, and Nick walked down that whole way, and he hiked all the way back up, but I held his hand the whole time. I didn't just let him walk on his own, and that's the idea of this preserve. The idea is that Jesus Christ preserves. He watches over, he guards, he keeps. Whatever the storm might be that we go through, whatever the trial is that we might face, whatever the hardship we might endure, Jesus Christ preserves. He secures, he watches over. In John chapter 10, verse 27, he said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. We are safe, we are secure in the hands of Jesus Christ. And you know what's really awesome? This preserved is also a perfect tense. And it literally means that you are preserved, you will be preserved, you will forever be preserved. There is no unpreserving you. It can't happen. You are and you will be preserved forever. Jesus Christ is watching over you, guarding you, keeping you, and he will always be doing so. There will never be a time when he is not. We think in our minds because of our circumstances, where is God? Read the book of Job, and Job said that. You're, I look on the right hand, you're not there. I look to the left, you're not there. Where are you? And we do feel that way, but the reality is, is God has not moved, and God has not abandoned us. He is always there, preserving, keeping, watching. Always, always. So these believers were set apart for service. They were secure in the hand of the Father, or in the sa- hand, the, secure in the hand of the Savior. The third thing, they were summoned by God. The reality is this. The set apart of ser- for, for service and the secure in the hand of the Savior are the results of the calling. Notice what it says. It says, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Called to what? What does he mean by called? 
Take your Bibles, go over to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter number eight. And look at verse 29. Well, let's start in verse 28. And we know, those are three very important words. What he's about to say, do we know? Is it a reality in our hearts and in our minds? We read this verse and we quote it all the time. But do we know it to be true? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, more importantly, whom he did predestinate, them he also, what? Called. And whom he called, them he justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Here you see God's viewpoint on your salvation. This is how God sees it. There would be those who would tell you that this calling is for a select group. There would be those who would tell you that this predestination has predestined some to heaven and some to a place called hell. And that is man's attempt to understand God. Just because God knew, just because God ordained some things, doesn't negate man's free will. Man still gets a choice. Man still gets a choice. If the, if the previous thing that I, if the latter was true, if man didn't have a choice, then here's my question. Did Joseph have a choice? Did Moses have a choice? Did Abraham have a choice? Is it all rigged? Is it all just rigged? Am I stuck? You see, the end of that logic is this then. God becomes the author of sin. That is the natural end of that logic. And that is very, very dangerous. It is very dangerous. Ladies and gentlemen, who is called? I would argue that everybody is called. Everybody is called. Jesus Christ said in John chapter 12, verse 32, he says, and if I, and he says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The calling is for everybody. Here's the problem. Not everybody answers the call. Not everybody answers the call. I have an uncle. You should have been in the hotel room in Wisconsin when I witnessed to him while he was drunk, you should have seen him get belligerent and almost violent trying to witness to him. I realized it was futile, and we stopped. You should have seen my dad weep and pray and cry over his unsaved brothers and sisters. And my dad witnessed to them over and over and over and over again, and they're still not saved. They've heard the call has been there, but they have rejected. They've made a choice. 
And ladies and gentlemen, here's the reality. God has set everything up and everything's in place. And when somebody answers the call, they become a part of the called in verse 28. You become a part of the called. You become a part of the predestined. You become a the part of the glorified and the justified. It all happens when you accept Jesus Christ by faith. At that point, all those things take place. All of them. But you have to answer the call. And here in the book of Jude, these believers have answered the call. They've accepted Christ as their Savior. And because of that, they are set apart for service and they are secure in the hand of the Savior. The called. The called. Being a part of the called simply happens when you answer the call. When you answer the call. So, here you have these believers. They are set apart for service. They are secure in the hands of Jesus. And they have been summoned by God. Go back to the book of Jude. One more thing I want you to think about tonight. Verse number two. Here he says, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. The last thing I want you to think about is the sentiment of Jude. Jude had a desire for these Christians. I find it interesting. In verse 3, the very first word is beloved. Jude starts, I believe Jude starts this book very, almost sentimentally. I feel like you see Jude's heart in these first few verses. His love, his desire for these Christians. And I think he starts the book that way because I think what he's about to say will be a little easier to swallow. Have you ever realized that sometimes it's best to start a conversation kindly before you lower the bomb or the boom? Sometimes things are received better that way. And that kind of seems to be the way Jude is. Jude had a heart for these people, but there was a glaring issue and he was going to have to deal with it. But here I want you to see the sentiment of Jude, his desire, his attitude, his passion for these Christians. Three things here, once again, three. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Here's the interesting thing. This word multiplied means to grow or it means to increase. But the interesting thing about it, excuse me, is that it is a passive word. And if you know anything about passive words, it means you can't do it. It has to be done for you or to you. And so here's the interesting thing. He wants these Christians to grow in mercy, peace, and love. But then he tells them, but you can't do it. And here's the awesome thing about it. He is not telling these Christians to increase in something and telling, telling them, but it's hopeless, you can't do it. It's actually the complete opposite. He's telling them, you need to grow in these three things, and if you'll submit to God, he will grow these things in you. He will grow these, three, these things in you. It's kind of like compound interest and investing. Compound interest is an amazing thing. I remember when I was in high school, it was, everybody was talking about $10,000. If you can get $10,000 by the time you graduate high school and invest it and never touch it until you're 65 or whatever it was, you'll have X amount of millions of dollars. I'm sure it's not $10,000 anymore. I'm sure it's a lot more. But why? It's compound interest. 
when you put that money aside and you don't touch it, and you just leave it alone and you let it grow and let it do what it's gonna do, it compounds. And it's amazing how compound interest grows. It's amazing. And here, if we will take our hands off, submit to the Lord, the Lord will grow these things in our lives. And he wants us to grow these things in our lives. And so these three things, real quick, the first one is compassion. And that's literally what the word mercy means. It's compassion. It's pity. Now, when you hear the word pity, you say, man, don't pity me. Your pride rises up. Don't feel bad for me or don't patronize me. I don't need your pity. You need God's pity. You know, the amazing thing about this mercy or this pity or this compassion is it is not, God does not pity us and belittle us at the same time. Many times when we pity somebody and we show compassion towards somebody, we gripe. Well, if they would have done this or if they'd have done that, and we do, we gripe. And we don't show true compassion. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, well, if you would have, well, if you didn't. God doesn't treat us that way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were undeserving, he showed mercy to us, compassion. And that's what God shows us. And that's what God wants us to be. God wants us to be compassionate. That means we don't hold things over somebody's head. It literally means to love or to care in spite of somebody's faults or imperfections. To love somebody where they're at instead of where you expect them or think they should be. That's what it means. I'll give you an illustration to my detriment. Thursday, my wife is here all day working, decorating, cooking, prepping with Leonard, getting ready for a Friday night. Friday, my wife is here all day cooking, getting ready, doing things for Friday night's banquet. And my wife made the lovely decision to wear flats for shoes. Friday night, her and I, we're walking out to the dumpster, we're taking some trash out, and we're walking back, and she's, she's complaining about her feet hurting and how, how horrible her legs feel, and she's going on, and I looked at her, and I said, well, why'd you wear flats? And she looked at me, and I said, why didn't you wear a more comfortable shoe, like a tennis shoe or something? Why did you wear flats? Of course your feet are going to hurt. Yeah, I'm the jerk. I know. You don't have to tell me and stop looking at me so piously. I was not compassionate. If I would have been compassionate, I would have, I would have said, I'm sorry, your feet hurt. I would not have offered to rub her feet. Oh, oh man. Oh, man, that's, I don't, sorry, feet are not my thing, man. That, that, that right there is an act of love, let me tell you. Whoo, that is hard for me. But I was not compassionate. Not at all. And you know what? God wants us to grow in mercy. The amazing thing, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. The last part of these two verses are my favorite part. Great thy faithfulness. Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that God will never be unfaithful in being merciful and compassionate? 
He'll never be unfaithful in it. It's just like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our, if we confess our sins, or he is faithful, you know the verse, but anyway, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Listen, there will never be a day in time when God is unfaithful in forgiving our sins if we will ask him for forgiveness. You will never go to God. God is not like we are. You'll never go to God and say, God, you get, no, it's the last time. No, get away from me. You don't deserve it. I don't like you anymore. God will never treat you that way. He is faithful. And what an amazing thing that God is faithful in his mercy, his compassion. You know why? Because we need his pity. We need God's mercy and his compassion. And it's amazing how often we expect people to be compassionate or merciful towards us, but yet we refuse to reciprocate and show them mercy and compassion. But not only compassion, calmness. Notice the next one. Mercy unto you and peace. Peace. Do you like peace? I like peace. I don't like fighting with my wife. I don't like it when things are unsettled. I don't like that. I don't like it when it's that way with somebody else. Do you think the disciples like peace? Remember in Mark chapter 4 when they were on the sea and that storm arose and they were out there freaking out? And in verse 39 it says, And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto thee, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. Boom, it was gone. And there was a great calm. Peace. Be still. Stillness, that's peace. When things are still. Don't you like that? I like that at home. I like that at work. It's nice when it's like that at work. You know, I like peace. You realize in the book of Romans, um, chapter 14, verse 19, Paul said, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and the things wherewith one may edify another. He says, literally, we are to pursue or follow after the things that would make for peace. We are to seek peace. We should want peace. Man, we have, we have a couple kids that have been coming to youth group. Man, I'll tell you, last Wednesday, we had 18 kids up there. And I was, it was kind of scary. But um, it was good, though. But we have a couple kids, man, there is no peace in their life. There's no peace at home. And some of them, they like the drama. You realize people can be addicted to drama? You realize that? And um, unfortunately, we have a couple kids that live in a vicious cycle where they have a drama, they get through it, they're doing pretty good, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I, I need drama in my life again, and they get drama in their life. There's no peace. There's no stillness. There's no calm. You realize God wants to give you peace? God wants your life to have peace. He wants your life to be calm. What's really awesome is, number one, we have peace with God. We have peace in salvation, Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Do you realize when you got saved, God gave you peace? You're no longer enemies. You're no longer at war. You have a peace, but God wants you to have practical peace. Peace throughout your daily life. Peace with your neighbors. Peace with your friends. Peace with family. Peace with whoever, coworkers, or whatever it might be. And what's really awesome is in Philippians 4.7, he says, in the, in the peace of God, 
which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There is a peace that only God can give. There is a peace that only God can give. God wants us to grow in mercy or compassion, in peace or calmness, and the last one is charity, love. Mercy unto you and peace and love. Love. I thought it was neat what... Um, um, oh, now I can't even think of the man's name. Who preached last Sunday night? Brother Stark. I thought it was neat what he said about Corinthians 13, how he never changes that word charity to love. Or to love. He always leaves it charity. I realize here in this verse it is love, but it's the same word. It is the word love or charity. And his reasoning for that, saying that the idea of charity means that I have to give of myself. It's going to cost me something. Do you realize love is going to cost you something? It costs God something. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave of himself. You realize when we love, we give of ourselves. You can't help it. You can't help it. What did he say last week? You can give without love, but you can't love without giving. It's impossible to truly love somebody and not give. It's impossible. It's impossible. Love. Grow. Increase in love. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.14 said, For the love of Christ constraineth us. It was that which bound them up and felt, made them feel like they needed to serve God. It was the love of Christ. He said, For we are... Um, and then we're to love God with everything we have. Jesus said to them, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. You're commanded to love God with everything you have. And one thing that's really amazing when it comes to the love of God is there isn't a thing in the world that can separate you from it. If you're a Christian, Paul said in Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nobody. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. He says, nay. He says, your mindset is wrong. You are not counted as sheep for the slaughter. He says, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded. That is an awesome word, that persuaded. It literally means to be convinced by the facts. It's a legal term. He's looking at exhibit A, B, C, D, and E, and F, all the exhibits, and he says, yep, there's no other, it's proven, you can't, you can't deny it, it's a fact. What's a fact? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, powers, things present, things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen, you can't do a thing to be more loved by God and you can't lose or get rid of the love of God. It's yours. It's yours. It's yours. Jude had a desire for these Christians to grow. And you know what? I think God has a desire for us to grow. I realize mercy's a hard one. I saw the test results. I know. I know. I get it. But God wants us to be compassionate. He wants us to live with peace, a calmness. He wants us to have love or demonstrate love and show people love. He wants us to grow in those things. 
He wants them to be multiplied in our lives. This word multiplied simply means to grow or to increase, but if you were to take two, the number two and add to it, two to it, what do you get? Four, right? But what if you add two to it to that answer? What do you get? And then what if you add two more? What if you add two more? You get 10, right? Let me ask you a question. If you multiply two times two, what do you get? And then you multiply it by two. You get eight. And then if you multiply it by two, you get 16. And if you multiply it by two, you get 32. And if you multiply it by two, you get 64. Multiplied. You realize God isn't necessarily interested in our lives being two plus two. God wants our lives to abound. He wants to multiply, and he wants to multiply fruit. God isn't interested in just a little bit here and a little bit there. God wants to do something great in your life and in mine. But we have to let him. We have to let him. And when we make that choice to submit, to surrender, and to allow him to work through us, there is no telling what he can do. We have no clue. Why? Because he's God. He's God. It's limitless what God could do with us if we'll let him, if we'll let him. Father, thank you for the night. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be submitted and surrendered to you. Lord, I pray that mercy, peace, and love would abound in our hearts and in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.